Let's pray again as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask again for your help. Uh, we pray, please, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see what you want us to see from your Word. We pray that you would use your Word by your Spirit to build us up and strengthen us, to focus us on what is important and to grow us in the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, um, adverts before film, uh, the, the kind of preamble before a big game, the preface to books, for me, it just feels like a bit of a waste of time. Um, tell me uh, when the film is actually about to start, and I'll be there. Give me a call when the game is actually kicking off and I'll be there, but I'm just not interested in the half an hour chit chat beforehand. How is it all gonna go? Who's gonna win? Full of cliches. I'm just not in. That's just my personal opinion. Um, strongly held, albeit. Um, you are welcome to think differently, um, but I'm not into all of that preamble. I am a skipper when it comes to those things. But the reason I mention that is because uh, I think our passage today can feel a little bit like that, like the adverts before the film or the preamble before the big game. It feels a little bit like time-filling preamble. So last week, we saw Jesus' ascension, which is huge. And next week, we're going to see the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is huge. And this week... Well, it's the, it's the 10 days leading up to Pentecost. It doesn't feel very important. But we've just got to remember that Luke doesn't waste his words or our time. He's very, very deliberate in his vol volumes about what he selects and chooses to include and what he leaves out. But why? Why do we need 15 verses on these 10 days between ascension, Christ's uh, going back to heaven, and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, I hope this morning we're going we're to see, see why. I think we're going to see three lessons. One lesson about prayer, one about God, and a third about the apostles' testimony about Jesus. For, so firstly, I think we see here in this narrative the power of prayer prayer is powerful just to recap last week we saw Jesus appear the risen Jesus appear to his disciples on numerous occasions over a period of 40 days we saw him tell them the plan he instructed them to wait in Jerusalem until the spirit comes and then he promised them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, when the Holy Spirit had come on them. So he appears to the apostles, he tells them the plan, and then he is taken up from them. So what then do these disciples, the, the group, uh, including the apostles and others, what do they do during this 10-day wait for the Holy Spirit? Well, the good news is that they stay in Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus had told them to do. So tick, 
to them. They stay in Jerusalem, and they pray. That is one of the main activities that they do during this time. Just have a look at verse 14, Acts 1, verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At note, they were united in prayer. They all joined together, is the language that Luke uses. Uh, not just indicating that they were praying in the same place, uh, but telling us that they were united in spirit as they prayed. I guess if we, would have, if we had been there, we would have heard um, as they prayed, people chiming in on each other's prayers. Plenty of, yes, Lord, what she said. Amen, yes, please do that. They are joined together and they are persistent. They all join together constantly in prayer. We're not told how many times over that 10-day period they, they prayed because it wasn't like that. The whole time was marked out by prayer. We've got a friend who is a serious tea drinker, um, always putting on the kettle, always with a cup of tea in her hands. If we were to give her a call this afternoon and say, um, well, Amy, what are you up to this afternoon? Uh, chances are, she'll say, oh, we've just put the kettle on, or I'm just finishing a cup of tea. Always drinking tea, constant. Well, likewise, if you were to go back in a, in a, in a time machine, back to the first century, and meet the, the disciples in these 10 days, chances are you would find them praying because they were praying constantly. Now, given what's about to happen, this is really, really significant. From their point of view, in just a few days' time, the gospel is going to explode onto the scene. When the day of Pentecost comes, spoiler alert, there are going to be 3,000 baptisms of new converts. 3,000. In the months afterwards, the gospel is going to spread like wildfire transforming countless lives and eternities, so that by Acts chapter 17, uh, critics of the gospel will complain that the apostles and their message have turned the whole world upside down. But why is this all about to happen? Why is the gospel about to go viral the way it does? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways to answer, to answer that question. Firstly, you could say, because Jesus promises that it would. Acts 1 verse 8, it's a key verse for the whole, the whole of Acts. Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and it's a promise, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The gospel's about to go viral because Jesus has promised that it will, and he always comes good on his promises. But there's another way you can answer that question, which is equally true. Why does the gospel go viral? Because God's people here are praying. In other words, they know how to respond when God makes a promise. And we were looking at 2 Samuel 7 in our home groups yeah, this week. And we saw there God make a promise to David 
that one of his descendants would rule forever. That's the promise about the coming of Jesus. What does David do in response to hearing this promise? Does he kick back and put his feet up and say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do? No, he leans forward and he prays. He says, Lord, do as you have promised. He prays in God's promise. And I think that's probably what's going on here in Acts chapter 1-2. Jesus has made them a promise. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You are going to be my witnesses. And so what do they do? They get down on their knees and they pray it in. Lord, do as you have promised. Please send your Holy Spirit. Please enable us to be your witnesses to the very ends of the earth as you have promised. And as we'll see next time, God is going to answer their prayers and fulfill his promise in a dramatic uh, way. So I think right at the beginning of this, here is a real encouragement to us to remember and to see the power of prayer. I wonder if you've ever found yourself saying, um, it's just a prayer meeting. You know, what's going on at church tonight? It's just a prayer meeting. Now, maybe by that we mean um, it's a time which is devoted to prayer. That prayer is the only thing that we're going to be doing. That is the main activity, and that's great. But it's just a prayer meeting can also be a way of saying and communicating, we're not really doing anything tonight, um, or at least nothing of any significance or importance it's just a prayer meeting. It's, 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 not a, it's not like a members meeting when decisions get taken and things get done. It's just a prayer meeting. It's not like a baptismal service where uh, people get to see the gospel enacted and to see, hear the gospel. It's just a prayer meeting. Nothing much is going to come of it. And if that's what we mean by just a prayer meeting, well, that's very worrying. It's a, and it's very, very far removed from this group of disciples and how they thought about prayer. Of course, God is not tied to our praying. He sees the big picture. He does what he is going to do, absolutely. And yet often, when God is about to do something, what does he do but stirs up his people to pray? You think of the the revival here in Ulster, 1859, What was it that turned the province upside down? What kicked it all off? Prayer. Believers joining together constantly in prayer. God often uses our prayers, our corporate prayers especially, it seems, to fulfill his promises of growing his kingdom. So I wonder, do you appreciate the power of prayer? Do you see the place of prayer in God's plan of salvation. So this teaches us about prayer. Secondly, it teaches us about God and how he's not blindsided or caught unaware by betrayal. Because as these believers wait for the Holy Spirit and pray, there's an elephant in the room that needs addressing. Judas Iscariot and his betrayal. Because from the point of view of these believers, 
his betrayal had just come out of nowhere. Do you remember when Jesus told them around on the, on the Last Supper that one of them would betray him, and they're all flabbergasted. They cannot take it in. They cannot, for the life of them, think who it could be. They did not see it coming. And I imagine that six weeks later, their minds are still full of questions. Was Jesus right to appoint Judas as an apostle in the first place? Was he caught off guard by this the way we were? What about God? And so Peter, having searched the scriptures, having spoken to the others as well, no doubt, Peter addresses the elephant in the room. Verse 15 to 17. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. What does Peter say here about Judas? Well, he calls out Judas as evil. Peter says he was one of our number, he shared in our ministry, and yet served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Uh, Jesus. In other words, Judas, make no mistake, he was a, a, a traitor. What he did was evil. He calls out Judas as evil. Luke then tells us readers about God's judgment on Judas. These are these strange verses in verses 18 to 19. With the payment Judas received for his wickedness, he bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. Uh, Luke's not telling us here how, how Judas died. Uh, Matthew tells us that he hung himself. But rather, he's describing to us what then happened to Judas's dead body. He falls. Yeah, so, you don't really want to think about it, but if, if, if Judas had hung himself on a tree, maybe the, the branch breaks after his body swells, his, his, his body falls and is pierced, and it's, it's gory and it's messy. And I think Luke just wants us to know that Judas, in, in, in killing himself, uh, after what he did, is not somehow sidestepping the judgment of God. No, God has ensured that this traitor and betrayer has received a dishonorable and disgraceful end. So we're told that Judas's evil was evil, no excuses made for him. We're told about God's judgment on Judas. But the big point of Peter's speech here and in, in, in addressing this elephant in the room is that God was not somehow caught off guard by Judas and his betrayal. What does, he say? what does he say? Verse 16, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Verse 24, said Peter, it is written in the book of the, of the Psalms. May his place be deserted. 
at the end of Luke's gospel, the risen Jesus tells his apostles how the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms point forward to Jesus. And so Peter goes looking in the Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109 especially. What does he read in the Psalms? He reads about people betraying God's king and repaying the king's friendship with evil, describing what happened to King David in his life, but also predicting what would happen to King David's great-great-great-great-grandson in his life. You see, with Jesus' encouragement, Peter reads the Psalms. What does he see? He sees Judas's treachery predicted and foretold. The scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. His evil was evil. He was deserving of judgment. But says Peter, nevertheless, this was all a part of God's big picture salvation plan. God was not blindsided by this the way we've been. Peter says Jesus was not mistaken in choosing Judas as an apostle. It had to be. It was all part of God's plan to bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. And for us too, I think that is a real relief. That when we see opposition to the gospel or when we hear of um, someone betraying Jesus today, it can blindside us. You know, I think back and I can still remember at several occasions the, the, the feeling of shock on hearing the news that some prominent Christian or some effective gospel worker had either left their faith behind or their, their evil had been exposed. It's a massive shock, blindsides us. We think, I don't get it. His ministry was so helpful. His books were so good. He seemed so sincere and genuine. What a relief that God is not blindsided by evil and betrayal the way we can be. He sees it coming. He judges it. And in fact, he even uses it, as he did with the case of Judas, to bring about his good purposes. And so when we see of this and we hear of this, we can still say the gospel is true. God's plan is still on track. In fact, it is going exactly according to his big picture plan. God is not blindsided by evil and betrayal the way we can be. But then thirdly, we see here something about the apostles and their testimony about Jesus. Looking here at verses 21 to 26. In Psalm 109, Peter sees a mandate to replace Judas. Uh, no doubt he has in mind Jesus' promise in Luke 22, also uh, swelling, uh, going around his mind. Jesus said to them then, to his apostles, to the twelve, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Peter knows that in Christ's coming kingdom, there will be twelve thrones um, sat on by twelve apostles. He knows that Judas 
has to be replaced. But not with just anyone. Um, Peter doesn't address the 120 by saying, um, listen, everybody, we need a volunteer. We need a volunteer. Can someone please volunteer for this role of an, of an apostle? Anyone will do. We just need uh, a 12th apostle. Now, there are two strict job requirements here. The 12th apostle needs to have been there. So listen to verses uh, 21 and 22. Peter says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Whoever it is needs to have been there. So someone says, someone puts their hand up and says, listen, Peter, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'll have a go. And Peter says, well, were you with us the whole time? And they say, well, yeah, pr I mean, pretty much. Um, I wasn't there at, bapt at Jesus' baptism. Um, but from about three months on, I I've been with you the whole time. I've seen Jesus' miracles, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. I've been part of the group. And Peter says, I'm afraid you're not qualified. Because whoever it is needs to have been needs to have been there the whole time, witnessing everything, his baptism, his ministry, his miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the first requirement. Secondly, this replacement, apostles need, this replacement apostle needs to be chosen by Jesus. So from those out of the group who had been there the whole time, two are nominated, Joseph and Matthias, and so they pray again and ask Jesus to show them which one Jesus has already chosen. And they cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias, and he is made the twelfth apostle, the twelfth divinely appointed witness to Jesus' life and entire ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, why does Luke tell us this whole process, and not to instruct us how we're to conduct our church meetings, not to tell us about how going forward we should appoint deacons and elders and pastors and so on. Incidentally, after this point in the New Testament, you never again hear of any incident where uh, decisions are taken by the casting of lots. The coming, of, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 clearly changes things. But in any case, it's just not about how we should do church uh, business meetings. Now, Luke tells us all of this for a different purpose. He tells us this so that we might have certainty. In particular, so that we might know for sure that the apostles' testimony about Jesus is reliable and true and trustworthy. It's so important, isn't it, to be informed by qualified experts. Uh, when I go to the doctor, um, I need to know that they're a qualified expert. 
You know, if I were to arrive at the GP and find that the GP has been, uh, is off sick and has been replaced for the day by a first-year medical student, I'm sorry, but I'm not staying. You know, I need to know that the person in charge of my health is a qualified expert, and I guess you would do the same. If I were to seek financial advice, I'd need to know that whoever it is is a qualified expert who actually knows what they're talking about. When I take my car to get fixed, I need to know that the mechanic isn't just some bloke who fancies having a go fixing my car, but is actually a qualified expert. And likewise, when it comes to life and faith and Jesus and the gospel, we need to be informed by qualified experts. And what Luke is saying here, and what we see here, is that in the 12 apostles, that is exactly what we have. They are qualified experts, having been there the whole time, having been chosen by Jesus himself. And that can give us real confidence and certainty. It means we can read their testimony. We can read the New Testament on which which uh, their testimony is the basis for the New Testament, we can read it with total confidence. These guys, they know what they're on about. They were there the whole time. They are chosen by Jesus, divinely appointed. No one has greater expertise about the gospel and Jesus and what it means to live for him than these guys. So sit down, pick up the New Testament, read it, and have total confidence that what you read is really true. They are the divinely appointed witnesses. So not just 15 verses to space out Luke's material between Ascension and Pentecost. Not time-filling preamble that we can just skip over, but a key passage giving us key lessons about the power and place of prayer in God's salvation plan, about God's sovereignty over evil, how nothing catches him unaware and nothing can thwart his plan to bring the gospel to the very end of the earth, and about the apostles' testimony about Jesus, about which we can have total certainty and believe with full and total confidence. Let's pray that we would have that level of confidence in the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, yeah, at least to our ears, rather peculiar passage. We thank you what it teaches us about you, that you answer prayer that you fulfill your promises. And so in, that, in light of that, we pray, please, would you fulfill and complete the good work that you have begun in us? Would you come good on your promise to bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth? Would the Lord Jesus come back as you have promised he would? We thank you for the, 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 the reassurance that you, Lord, are sovereign over all, that nothing can thwart your plan, that you can even use evil for your good purposes. 
And we thank you for the cast iron certainty and confidence that we can have that the gospel that we know and love is true, is real, speaks truth about us, about our lives, about our futures. And so we pray, would you grow us more and more in certainty and confidence? We thank you that we can have it in Jesus' name. Amen.